All right, you are listening to Windsor's Inside Pulse, the show that brings you the latest news, views, and happenings of our great region. For our CJM listeners, you are listening to CJM 99.1 FM, reaching higher ground. And we remind all our listeners that the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of Windsor's Inside Pulse and our co-hosts and do not necessarily reflect the views of CGM or its affiliates. Please remember to like us on Facebook and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app for more great bonus Ward 7 interviews, and they've been great. Make sure you stay posted. With that being said, this is the special September 8th edition of Windsor's Inside Pulse. My name is Al Tashuba, co-hosting with... Daniel Lablisser and... Dave Sundin and... Christine Brooks. The first story that we want to uh, talk about tonight is uh, an update on COVID, where we're at in the community. The big story last week, um, I think, in our community was a... Uh, some tracking and some tracing of an outbreak that I think affected 31 people in Windsor. Um, there was a lot of reporting. The Windsor Star, Taylor Campbell, I think had an excellent article and Ann Jarvis followed that up with a report on this sort of cluster of five families that had um, that had a COVID outbreak. We are not going to mention family names. Nobody in the media has uh, mentioned family names at this point. Um, but but I think that this does highlight again the need to uh, the, the need to continue to be careful because COVID is very much still in our community. The other piece of this that I think that we want to discuss is the, the concept of privacy and the concept of whether or not um, people should be being named. Certainly there are the businesses that were connected to these clusters are being named. So I know that there was an article that I think named uh, John Max uh, Bar, and there were questions about, you know, is it fair to these businesses to be named? So I guess we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go around the table and see uh, what people's thoughts are on where we're at with COVID, but also this concept of, are we striking the right balance between not naming people and not naming families, um, but then naming the businesses? So, uh, so let's kick that off, see where we're at with uh, COVID. Al, why don't I go to you first for your comments on where we're at? Well, I think that's a health health issue, so you shouldn't be naming individual names, but at the same time, to protect the health of the community, you could say where the location was. Now, from my understanding, including the school boards, um, anybody who touches a book, they're leaving it aside for five days, and that's supposedly enough time for it to be, you know, any virus to be killed off on paper or surfaces or things like that. So essentially, if you were in that place during that time, you can try to trace yourself back because they don't know everybody who went in and out. I, I got to tell you, I just had an open house on the weekend. Finally, first one in six months, they're allowing us to have realtor open houses. And it was very strict, masks, gloves, limited amount of people. And very important, uh, you had to take the name down for tracing purposes in case it's ever discovered. So there's already like an investigative uh, Windsor Health Unit and other sources that if someone has COVID, they try to privately and quietly trace back. It doesn't need to be publicly announced. I think people still have their privacy rights as far as health. So that's good. And as far as saying the location, that's okay. People can say, oh, was I there? Just double check. I mean, it's, it's part of the way that you can beat COVID and help to trace it. I think it's a very good balance right now. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, Al. I think we are striking the right balance. It's a bit weird to name places, but not people, because if you knew you were at a place, you might know you were with a person, but I think that we are 
striking that right balance. I, sh I should also say, you know, I, I think that along with the Windsor Star doing excellent reporting on this cluster of 31 families, that all comes from the health unit doing this contact tracing. So I, th I think this is really excellent work by the health unit um, tracing tracing these uh, the this this breakout. I, I guess maybe the other piece is that if families or individuals caught COVID um, sort of through no fault of their own, we don't name them, but I, I think that maybe if you were warned that you need to uh, you need to isolate because of a possible uh, a, a possible exposure and you ignored that, then you know I don't know whether charges are appropriate, but maybe that's where we where we draw the line and get into name and shame. So uh, let's kick it to Dave. Dave, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I know early on in the pandemic, the health unit announced they weren't going to name the names of greenhouses that uh, had outbreaks. And the rationale for that was they wouldn't do so if there was low risk for community spread from those locations. I would think places like bars and restaurants, the, the rationale for naming names is there's a, there's a higher incidence of um, the ability for community spread. People will come and go from there, whereas the greenhouse operations are more or less just the employees who were there. Um, they were the ones exposed, so they were told in any event, saying there's an outbreak here, um, we need testing to happen. So they would have known, but there's no need to, to publicly name and, and, and shame the, the greenhouse business that could, that could suffer uh, adverse um, economic uh, consequences because of that. So I, I understand the, the public health and safety concerns for naming restaurants and bars is just the, uh, I think, a higher, a higher incidence of people from, from outside coming in. Obviously, it's just the nature of the business. People come, people go. You, you need turnover in order to, to drive sales and, and to make a profit. So uh, it makes sense there. Um, I tend to agree with you uh, as well, Daniel. The fact the health unit has, has processes in place to, um, to do the contact tracing, there's no need to name individuals. The health unit's talking to, to infected individuals saying, who'd you come in contact with? And then calling those people to, to let them know they need to quarantine and get tested and, and all that stuff uh, to protect themselves. Um, so it, it, there's measures in place for that. Um, not opposed though to the idea of naming and shaming if someone's breaking quarantine orders. Uh, they do that um, in, in some jurisdictions with, with drunk drivers. So someone goes out and drinks and drives, they're gonna get named in the, in the paper uh, saying this person was arrested and here's their name. Um, so it's it's one thing to you know innocently come into contact with it's another thing to to float um, uh, health orders and to to spread the, the virus. Yeah, I I think I agree with you on, on a lot of that. I think it's a uh, you know you know it's also interesting in a small community like ours. Certainly, there's been the. Uh, the, the rumor mill has been circulating about the five families that were uh, that were mentioned in these stories. We're not going to name anyone, but I suspect that uh, that a lot of us have heard names flying around. So it's uh, it, it's interesting how in a city our size uh, that works. But uh, Christine, your thoughts? I too, I really feel um, that it, it it's very well done. I, I don't quite understand the difference between um the greenhouses i know that of course the exposure is greater in a bar but i think a business is a business and if we are going to treat businesses in this way it should be everyone um i do personally have the covid app on my phone and uh i it it alerts me i if i were to catch it i would uh, put it all in there and i think this is a very efficient way of communicating to my community uh if i've been in contact or if i catch it and i think that 
uh, I think even though there are controversies that we will see later, um, I think it is a good app and a good way of uh, keeping people informed. At the same time, I have to say full, ex uh, full uh, disclosure that I am a friend of uh, John O'Kane's and the O'Kane's, but, um, and I had gone twice to the um, O'Kane uh, 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 John Max Sports and Wings on Dougal. And uh, frankly, I have to say that it goes uh, above and beyond, as the the uh, as he said to AM eight hundred. Um, he went the restaurant went above and beyond to make sure the health unit had all the information they needed, and also to make sure that their customers uh, were safe. There are no menus. They they wear masks. They have uh, distancing. It is just to tell you that this. COVID-19 is extremely efficient at being a virus. It does what it is meant to do, which is to go out and find a host and uh, transmit disease. And I think many people, including many young people, as the other article about family parties, card games, sleepovers tells us, that a lot of young people maybe especially because the ages of the of most of the victims of the covid-19 uh, new cases are young people it is in their nature to not believe that it could affect them and i think we have to continue to be vigilant and it will be a real test now with the school year starting everywhere that to to maintain this idea with the young people and the next four or five weeks is going to tell us whether we are able to convince everyone to stay together in this and because it is still among us i mean how did this happen i know the 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 individuals and uh and businesses are very very vigilant we have never washed our hands so much as a society and it's still around so that's all. <laughs> well, speaking yeah. of school, Christine, you went first day of school and you taught. Why don't you tell us a little bit, what was the new experience at the schools with regards to safety protocols firsthand? Oh, the safety protocols are many, many, but I have to tell you that at the school that I'm at, there is, uh, the students were not there yet. We are preparing and we are uh, bringing them in and there will, we will be only teaching one class a day for five and a quarter hours in, in half groups. So instead of having the full group, it will be the half group. When we are with the other half of the group, they will be at home. So it is a very complicated system. It is extremely efficient, I believe, in minimizing the contacts and in trying to keep people um, from spreading this virus, which, as I said, is extremely um, virulent. But yeah. worth the risk to go to school. Like you have to. Absolutely, have to absolutely. What I am hearing right now is is really that for the students, we have to have people with people again. We need to have contact. We need to have them uh, learn. We need to have them socialize. We need to have, you know, for mental health for for young people and for their well-being as well so absolutely this is the way to go if we could go all day um and 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 have four classes we would do it but it's we're not there yet 
Well, Christine, I, th I think that your description of uh, the virus was uh, apt. I'd say maybe it's a, we could describe it as a very talented virus. So, uh, so, and you all, you also, of course, mentioned the, uh, the app. I don't have the app. I don't know if, uh, if other people do. I think if the government said we had to have it, I guess I'd get it, but I don't know. I'm not there yet, but uh, that does provide a nice segue into the next, uh, the next topics that Dave's going to take us into dealing with that technology piece, but also expanding on this concept of, uh, this issue of privacy uh, and COVID. So Dave, why don't you uh, tell us about our next uh, topics? So let's start with a uh, CBC article by Jason Vow, uh, dated September 8th. Um, it deals with, it's entitled, Privacy, Community Trust, Equity Concern for Windsor Police Access COVID-19 Database. And so the story talks about the fact that um, from April 17th until July 20th, um, when the province revoked police access to um, the personal data available online, Windsor Police searched the database 1,841 times. Um, out of all the police force in Ontario, Windsor Police ranked 10th on the list of police agencies that used the database during that period. So the comment from the police, uh, they emailed a statement in, mentioned that information in the portal was only accessed to assist in communicating COVID-19 status information to first responders, strictly for the purpose of supporting uh, the Windsor Police Service personnel and making informed decisions about whether to take additional precautions to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Um, however, a, a number of critics on that uh, news story mentioned that this is an inefficient way to uh, ensure the safety of first responders and uh, breaches uh, the, the privacy of, uh, of Ontarians and uh, the fact that it provides dates of birth, names, identifiable information. Um, it's not clear that um, when people um, uh, were put in this database, whether or not they gave informed consent about sharing this with other government agencies, including the police service. Um, so that, that's really the first topic, uh, before we get to the next one, about that's a little more, um, I, I guess, a positive uh, news story. This one's a little, little more negative. So um, uh, Daniel, as a fellow lawyer, what's your, your comments on this? I find this issue with the police and the database fascinating. So my understanding is that the uh, Health Ontario had created this database of positive tests and we're sharing it with police departments, but that stopped a number of months ago, very quickly. Um, there wasn't an order that it had to stop, but I think that there was a recognition of the uh, of the privacy concerns. I, I don't know, I, I, find it, I find it fascinating. What, what did jump out at me from the numbers is that um, the Toronto Police Department, which I believe other than maybe the OPP would be our largest police department, they access the database zero times. And so, so that, I guess, you know, my, my, my normal inclination would be to say, look, I, I think that this is kind of reasonable for the police to have access to a database to know what they're potentially coming into contact with. But the fact that the Toronto police didn't seem to need it tells me, I guess, you know, you can't make the necessity argument when our biggest police force wasn't using it. So fa I find it fascinating. It's a difficult topic, um, but it's certainly a fascinating piece on the privacy side. Al? I actually was going to point out the Toronto police is zero. I was looking at the bottom and you see, um, you know, the Mohawk police services, the Niagara region. So it's obviously policy from police organizations or their mayor uh, to determine the, the use of it with regards to privacy. Maybe they're worried about being sued. I don't know. Obviously the article includes many of the criminal justice, uh, civil lawyers, law professors, Kristen Thompson specialized in privacy rights. I mean, th this is a touchy issue. Again, I don't want it names publicized in the newspaper. Um, certainly the health unit, if they believe they could save more people than, than not by knowing. I mean, that they're still within the medical field of maintaining personal medical information. Um, extending it to the police department, 
Maybe. I mean, uh, it's, it's obviously once every hundred years. It's a, it's a gray area to me. Um, at least they were transparent with regards to showing what the numbers are. And if the people are upset about it, then they'd go pick at the police station, I guess, or write petitions or sue them. I mean, at least the public is aware, transparent-wise, of these numbers as we are, and as we're mentioning here on Windsor's Inside Pulse. Yeah, so, so you're supposed to, um, uh, part of privacy legislation, you're supposed to be able to consent to what's being released. And, and I don't think that anyone had the, gave the requisite consent for this to happen. Um, I'd be surprised uh, if, if, if the Privacy Commissioner found otherwise that there was informed consent about you know, who this was going to be shared with. Um, but I also agree with the, the points in the article that it's a very inefficient way to deal with um, protecting first responders in a pandemic. Um, if you're only uh, taking extra precautions when you know that someone has COVID-19 versus those that might, um, you, you, there's a lot of risk. You know, someone may not have gotten got a test or might have got tested but don't have the results back yet. So if you're using that to rely on to ensure protection for first responders, it seems, it seems um, uh, like a shortcut that doesn't really lead anywhere. So Christine, your comments? Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't make sense as a as a reason. Um, obviously, uh, the first responders have to respond with the idea that they could potentially be in contact with COVID nineteen at any time, and you take the highest precautions at any time. Um, it's not as it's not like a, a drug like fentanyl where you would need a hazmat suit. Um, you know, and, and that kind of thing. So it's not that you would change your ways, you just use the precautions necessary. And then the second thing is, well, um, you know, the database seems to have a lot of information. And that information was given out to the police, which is okay. Um, as long as it's used, again, what were the uses? The use was not necessary. I think that's, that's, so I don't know. Um, will it be necessary in the future? I don't know. What kind of uses could they have had for this other than to help first responders to respond properly? No, that didn't work. So I don't know what other use there might be for this particular database to be um, available for the police. I don't see it. So um, I think that that's a good spot to segue into the next article, which I, again, I said earlier was a, a bit more positive. It talks about the fact that um, Windsor's been selected. So this is a Windsor Star article by Dave Waddell uh, titled Windsor Selected for Testing of International Health Passport. So uh, blockchain firm One Ledger has chosen Windsor to launch a test of its um, a concept for an international health passport in that helping, helping open up the border and the economy for essential workers. And the idea here is that uh, 50 to 100 uh, people uh, will sign up, uh, or I'm sorry, they're looking to hire 50 to 100 people, and then they're going to have people sign up for this app where presumably they're going to give um, permission and consent for their um, health information to be shared and used in certain ways to help them um, cross the border more efficiently and to, to rational, help rationalize the need to, to open the, uh, the border and, and the protections in place. So for example, um, the, the story quotes uh, from, uh, from this, this company, uh, One Ledger, it will add yet another layer of security and traceability. It can only help those traveling, those monitoring as such, working uh, hard to reduce the spread as we move along. And then goes on to mention that it, it, it could be shared with, um, uh, health information could be shared with others to be secure, but shared with others, including uh, border officials who will be able to access relevant health data. But presumably that's a bit different than the, um, the, the police accessing the, the provincial data in the fact that these users uh, first um, uh, 
uh, essential workers across the border are going to sign up for this app and provide their consent for the sharing of data as necessary. Um, so it goes on to, to note, uh, and this is, I think, an important part for the local economy because we, we see where um, technology um, during the pandemic is, is actually helping um, certain Windsor businesses. So they're looking to um, uh, partner with, with WeTech, um, uh, Ontario Centers for Excellence, and looking to the University of Windsor to supply the needed um, expertise. So it looks like a good coming together of, of our universities, um, our university, and uh, local businesses to help with this endeavor. So Al, I, I see you there. You want to provide a comment? <laughs> well, first of all, it's, it's funny that it's the Institute for Border Logistics and Security, and we already have the nexus passed. So pre-COVID, uh, people were based upon their background, their research, their necessity, where they're working. You know, why wait in line? Let's get the economy going. Professionals can give their nexus pass. They're already registered. They know who you are. Boom, you get across the border faster. It saves time at, for customs officers. It saves time for everything. So this now is based upon a health component to it. I, I can tell you this. There has never been a time, certainly through my lifetime, where the border has been shut down for this many people for this often, for this length of period. Economists must measure, because there's always been speculation, is it good that we have free trade? Is more money going from Windsor to Michigan or from Michigan to Windsor with regards to, remember it used to be Sunday shopping when our shops weren't open on Sunday or the, the special Black, uh, Black Friday deals. This now is, wow, we're gonna be able to measure to see how much money. Now, obviously Caesars Windsor, we're gonna be talking about that uh, later on in the show. Uh, the unions are looking to open that up. That's a big component of needing that Michigan money. So when it comes to our economy, Windsor in particular, I've always felt that we benefit a little bit more from getting the Michigan tourists coming to Windsor than the Canadians going over the border, especially when the, the Canadian dollar is so much weaker than the American. And if we can find ways, find tools that don't invade privacy too much, and people are volunteering for this, and it's something that is you know, without violating civil rights to make things smoother, similar to the Nexus Pass, which is voluntary, I'm for it. And let's get this open uh, border, the border open more, I should say, in a safe manner, because Windsor needs that Michigan dollars to help it thrive a little bit more. I agree with you, Al. I think, um, I think the border, I mean, as if we can get it open, it should be opened as quickly as possible and in a, in a safe manner. And if this can help it get there, I think that would be really good. Um, I think uh, it's, it's high time. I think already today I heard that maybe it, it will take another four weeks before we really um, engage in opening or even discussing opening the border. So it looks like it'll be longer than the 21st of September which is unfortunate because really um, it's, if it can be done earlier, the earlier the better. I, I really believe that we have to try to, um, but again, we have to be able to control this, this virus, definitely. Yeah, yeah I, I think, that, you know, I, I just, I like the, the app from the economic impact for, uh, for Windsor. I, I think this is the exact type of thing where we are exploiting our strategic advantage. And, and I think that's always where, where Windsor has a great advantage. It's the, you know, it's the Canadian port of entry for the largest 
border crossing. Um, and so I, I think that's great news uh, that we're, you, we're looking to opportunities, economic opportunities. Um, unfortunately, it comes out of COVID, but, but it's an economic opportunity that really exploits our border position. So, uh, so, uh, so any last thoughts on this or should we, uh, Chris, Christine, do you wanna take us into our next topic? Yes, this is a very interesting um, column that came out in the Windsor Star. It's, uh, about, it's uh, the title is She Session Fell During Pandemic Will Be Difficult to Overcome During Recovery. And basically the gist of this article is that in fact, um, the pandemic, which has resulted in a kind of recession or economic downturn and sudden uh, shock to the economy, a down, downward shock to the economy, has affected different segments of the population differently, and particularly women have been affected uh, more so, uh, more negatively, uh, in the last six months. In fact, um, one uh, quoting from the article, six months in, it is abundantly clear how the COVID-19 pandemic has changed life as we know it, especially for many women. Non-essential businesses closed down and the disparities became clear how sectors that mainly employed women, retail, the food, service, uh, food and service industry, gyms and nail salons, charities and nonprofits were the hardest hit with several announcing permanent closures. And this is of course uh, the, the very sad part. And so uh, the economist uh, Armin Yalnitsian uh, has been uh, watching these trends uh, very closely and has called it a she session as a recession that is hitting uh, more women uh, than, than men as they are losing their jobs more so than men. Um, in Windsor-Essex, a, a she session is particularly concerning according to the article and it really is because as we know, we have one of the highest rates of child poverty in Ontario, if not the highest rate, and um, where uh, the, the, the statistics that they give is one in four children is living in poverty in our region. And of course, it is very um, concerning because of course, if they are in a uh, one parent, uh, in a one parent uh, home, uh, the, if the woman, it is a woman who is leading this this uh, family, then you may have actually uh, further increased poverty. So uh, again, this is uh, this is uh, very concerning for our our area. I think we need to make sure that there are safety nets and that, of course, the um, the institutions in our area are able to to, given this information, go out and help where, where possible. Okay, so, uh, you know, my, my comments on that, Christine, are, um, it, it's unfortunate. We've seen great strides, um, 80s, 90s, 2000s, women making um, um, strides in the workplace and for gender equality and, and pay equity um, and, and all those good things. And then suddenly just comes to a grinding halt in the pandemic. And I, I certainly um, understand why, because despite how, um, you know, how, how far we've moved, it's still seen, um, you know, as, as, as women's role for childcare. And so with schools cut, um, shut down and uh, daycare shut down, um, it seemed like women were more likely to say, uh, I'm going to stop working and, and take the CERB or, or take EI or take whatever I qualify for and go home and care for the children. 
Um, so there, there was the aspect that certain industries that women were more likely to be employed in um, were shut down. Um, but there was also the added um, problem and, and stressor of the fact that someone had to take care of the kids. Um, and it's unfortunate that we haven't got to that point yet. But, um, you know, hopefully we're, we're better prepared for the next pandemic, which hopefully is many, many, many years away, where uh, we figured out a way to, to avoid um, a similar she session. So, Daniel, your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, excellent article, uh, guest column by Sarah Mushtak. I always uh, enjoy reading her comments, both in long form and on uh, social media. Um, you know, the one thing that jumps out at me is the closing sentence here is there is no recovery without a she recovery. There is no she recovery without childcare. And that really ties into the education piece. And, you know, for as much criticism as the Ford government has gotten for classroom sizes and things like that, really, in my view, there were two, there was, there were two options on grade school um, education. There was either every other day, which means that, you know, by and large, mom's got to stay home with the younger kids. Certainly in some cases, that'll be dad, but mom's got to stay home with the younger kids. It's, it's going to be what's going to happen most if you accept the argument being made, or we have, um, or we have every day for grades kindergarten to eight, and we take a little bit more of a health risk, but we we ensure the childcare. So I think that, you know, it's, it's hard to look at that without saying, okay, well then doesn't that kind of support what the uh, Ford government did on education? I, I'm no, uh, I'm, I'm no conservative backer, but I, I think that there's an argument in favor of what the, uh, the Ford government did there. So uh, unless there's any other comments, we will move right along to our first uh, non COVID story. So uh, the, uh, the next story is Erka out $300,000 after falling victim to an online scam. It seems that uh, the Essex Region Conservation Authority got sort of conned by an online scam into uh, making two money transfers. I think the first one was about 60000 The second one was about $230,000 to, to a scammer somewhere, and they seem to be out the money. There may be some ability to get that money back through insurance, but uh, but I don't know. This is pretty embarrassing. I guess my take is certainly uh, the chair, Kieran McKenzie, is the face of the picture, and it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty brutal, it's pretty brutal to be the face of the story, even though it's probably not, it, well, it's definitely not his fault in my view, but there's this sort of like weird picture it's a file photo of him but it's this weird look of oh my god what happened and uh, <laughs> not not the uh, not the best picture to be associated with so uh, Dave's not going to comment on this story for professional reasons but uh but Al let's kick it to you what are your thoughts on uh, on uh, Irka getting scammed well Irka is not my favorite institution because I've seen what they've done to developers who've got legitimate things to uh build on and so scam away <laughs> No, I, I'm, I mean, I don't want any, anybody to steal money from any government agency. Those are taxpayer monies. But, I mean, you know, they focus so much on hurting the little guy and trying to develop and every little thing and counting the number of snakes and making a $3,000 a snake to take out and fines and penalties and stuff. At the very least, you know, watch your own in-house. I mean, obviously, I don't want anybody to scam any government agencies. Hopefully, they get some insurance money back. Not a good picture for Karen, obviously, to be associated with that picture underneath an article of $300,000 scam. You don't want any picture associated with that. So I'm sure there'll be some follow-up story, and maybe he could reverse the image where suddenly he's the hero of getting it back or something. But it, it's one we're going to follow. I mean, it's interesting. I've never heard anything like this where an agency is 
dupe like this. So we'll see what happens. Cer certainly jumps out like, I mean, okay, what kind of controls did you have in place? And certainly some type of an audit or systems audit needs to be done um, because like this is pretty embarrassing. It's not like, it's not like you got somebody to pay a $700 account. Um, this is 300,000 bucks, which is a big number. So who was authorized to pay that? And uh, how the heck did this happen? Anyway, Christine? Yes, well, it's unfortunate. And really, I guess it makes it, uh even more real. The fact is that in the last, oh, I would say little year, uh, I have been bombarded with phone calls that are really fishing to be scammed or to try to scam me. Um, I've actually been caught once, I have to admit. It was a very early morning call telling me, at, it was about 5 a.m., telling me about a visa bill that you know had come out, et cetera, et cetera, only to say, that in 2019, the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre received 46,465 reports from fraud from consumers and businesses. And I guess this is what this particular article tells us, is that businesses are not safe from fraudulent activity either. Well, we've got a lot of great stories. Thank you, Christine. Thanks, everyone, for your input on these wonderful stories, interesting stories. We've got a lot of new stories coming up that we're gonna talk about on the second half of Windsor's Inside Pulse. Stay tuned. And we're back. You're listening to the second half of Windsor's Inside Pulse, September 8, 2020 edition. I'm Al Tashuba, co-hosting with... Daniel Lablisser and... Dave Sundin and... Christine Brooks. And can you believe we are spending $10 million on EC Row? Long overdue. I remember being a kid and constantly seeing sections of EC Row being built, being built. And then after 10 years, we're in the Guinness Book of World Records that EC Row took the longest ever for an inner city highway to be built. Not a record we're looking forward to. So Edward Charles Rowe, uh, the president of uh, Chrysler for back in the 50s, uh, is named after this. And I think he'd be very happy with this new $10 million expansion. Uh, this, is, this is something that we pride ourselves here at Windsor, being able to get from east to west, anywhere to anywhere within 15 minutes. And believe me, when I'm working with Toronto buyers and they're moving to Windsor, that's one of the selling features. They, they've never heard of such a thing. They're used to being stuck in traffic for 45 minutes, one hour. It doesn't exist here. So imagine how much time is being saved. Now with the expansion, get ready to save even more. And I'll never forget about 12 years ago, more than that, about 14, 15 years ago, when they were talking about the infrastructure with DRIC and the first proposal started to come out and they were talking about taking EC Road, spending $300,000 for those middle lanes and that would be the designated truck route. And the whole city stood up and said, what are you talking about? That's our EC Road that we pay for and you're not gonna have the international truck routes in there. You take it somewhere else. We love our EC Road not to be embedded with trucks. Our, our local trucks, certainly from uh, the auto sector, Chrysler, and so forth, could certainly use it to get to Huron Church and go to the international crossings. But internally, we love our EC row, and that's for us. And now it's getting expanded, and that makes the value of properties uh, worth more because you can get from anywhere to anywhere. And they're building out on the perimeter, so now they can get back in the city faster. Good job for Mayor Dokins. Good announcement. I love that jacket he was wearing. I was looking at one like that with the blue checkered there. Nice picture. Beautiful announcement. I see the project and they're working very rapidly just before winter. Perfect timing. Yeah, a, a good news story for, um, for, for Windsor. Obviously, uh, infrastructure spending is always a good idea uh, to boost the economy. And, and right now we're struggling a bit. So 
uh, time to spend some money um, that's much needed in any event. Uh, EC Row is in major need of a facelift to, to make sure that it keeps on going for, for a much longer period of time. But I think you got uh, um, previously, uh, I think the record was not only was it took the longest to build, it was also the most expensive per kilometer. So hopefully we don't have the, the same record during the rebuilding phase, uh, get it right. But um, I'm glad to see some, mu some much needed money being spent on, on EC Row. I couldn't help but wonder if it's going to take 10 years to get us the new bridge, you know, but uh, I'm really, really 20 happy. Years, only 20 years. Oh no, please no. Anyways, I, I love EC Row. I've used it all my life, uh, my working life. Um, I still used it. I used it today, but not coming back because there are uh, major transformations being done to the road. And I know I'm looking forward to it. Any part that they've done, they did the part close to uh, Manning Road. It is beautiful. The new roads and the construction that is happening all across this, this city um, uh, that was done over the summer and is still going on is absolutely beautiful. Uh, we are, the, we are um, London has been jealous of us for a long time. London did not have the foresight to put an easy row in their, in their city. And as a result, Many people are spending one or two hours commuting within their city compared to us here in Windsor, where we can get to uh, from from South Windsor to Tecumseh in about 12 minutes. Yeah, I guess uh, what, what jumps out at me on this is, look, first off, I think that certainly this stretch of EC Row needed to be reconstructed. There were certainly parts of it that were falling apart. but. The, the mayor seems to be pitching this as part of his campaign pledge to make uh, EC Row a world-class highway or something like that. And I mean, Al, you indicated that this is an expansion. I don't see anything in this ten in this stretch that they're doing, this three interchange stretch that's changing anything. My understanding is that this is just a reconstruction. So I don't understand. They're going uh, internally. They're, uh, you watch, I, I'm watching it and there's about, uh, looks like 50 feet of grass in between and it looks like they're cutting into it. I'm gonna wait for the final project to see it, but either way, they pave it, they get rid of the bumps or they merge it. There's one lane that kind of loops in if they extend that out. I mean, let's see where $10 million gets us. It's not as much money as it was back uh, 40 years ago. But yeah, I'm just I'm just curious happens. to see where where this goes because I mean it looks to me, what what I was seeing was basically just dig up and rebuild. I mean certainly you needed to reconstruct, but I didn't see this as fixing the interchanges. I didn't see this as a widening for this this phase. Now certainly there's going to be phases go in the future to uh, to do expansion and to do fixing off some of the uh, interchanges with butterfly interchanges and stuff like that. But but I didn't see this as part of that. So to me, this was just a reconstruction, but I'm certainly interested to see, I guess maybe we'll see hopefully in a month, hopefully not in two years, what this uh, actually looks like. But uh, I, I guess we'll have to stay tuned because if this well, is- I should have quoted the mayor. So just to be clear, he's saying, I made a commitment to transform EC Row into a modern world-class roadway and this project will help our community significantly bring us closer to that goal. Fixing Windsor's roads continue to be top priority. Strong infrastructure helps create the conditions of economic success in long term while creating construction jobs in the short term. And then at the very top, he talks about it being a rebuilding. So rebuilding, reconstruction, we'll see. I'm hoping at least we can squeeze one more lane. When they added one more lane on Huron Church, took out that big boulevard and went a little bit on each side just to make that left turning lane, Big, big difference. I mean, just stop traffic injection. We'll see what happens. But I mean, I'm happy they're spending the money on it. 
I also would like to add that really good roads uh, reduce pollution because uh, you spend less time on the road, it's less congestion, it's less idling. Um, so all of it is very positive. All right, and there's infrastructure also with the bike lanes that uh, Ann Jarvis was mentioning as well going around. So we'll, we'll focus more on the results. We'll see how it plays out. But uh, I'm very pleased with the way Windsor kind of connects in here, considering as well that we've got like big go-arounds like Zala Scrapyard, and then you've got other intersections, only certain rows. But now that we've got the underpasses on Howard Avenue, Walker, uh, it's very, very good. It's better than it was 10 years ago, better than it's ever been. So we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Let's move on to our next story. So the next story has to do with a, uh, a recent court ruling. Um, and we haven't had any, any really good partisan stories on uh, with, with Inside Pulse for a while now. It's been all COVID-19 related for the most part. Um, so this is certainly an interesting article. Uh, I did see some lengthier articles on it uh, earlier this week. Um, but the, there's a nice short one, but it gets right to the point by Gord Bacon on AM800 entitled uh, Court Rules Anti-Carbon Tax Seekers Unconstitutional. And so uh, this is a, um, uh, a decision from Superior Court Justice Edward Morgan. Um, it relates to a law that forced gas stations to display anti-carbon tax stickers. Um, and so if you've gotten to get gas any time in the past uh, year or so, you would have seen these uh, stickers which show a 4.4 uh, a cent per liter carbon tax uh, now, rising to 11.1 cents per liter in 2022. Um, and the uh, Justice Morgan, um, he called it a blatant advantage seeking by a political party and a mu misuse of a governing party's legislative power. Um, and, and so that's a pretty um, damning um, uh, finding. Um, and uh, this was all brought about by, uh, before the court by the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, uh, alleging that the law violated free speech provisions. Uh, and so um, obviously I'd like to uh, hear my, my co-host's thoughts on this um, and see whether or not there's a, a divide on it. Uh, let's go to, uh, to Daniel first. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not surprised by this. I guess, you know, government always has some right to create warning labels and stuff, but I certainly thought that this crossed a line. This was back when uh, when Doug Ford was doing very unpopular things early in his uh, in, in his pre-COVID days, and, and I certainly thought that this was political. Um, what, what I do think is interesting is that it creates this precedent of this, you know, test that we're going to see when we get into this question of, well, what's a warning label? What's a political advertisement? Um, and so it's, it's a slippery slope, but I wonder if this is actually going to be harmful in future legitimate warning labels, because now, you know, the, the courts have struck down the government creating a forced, what presumably they would call a warning label and what opponents would call, you know, political pandering. So, uh, so, so, so that's my take, but certainly on, on balance on this one, I think that it was, uh, it was certainly highly partisan. It was not a warning label. It was a partisan, uh, partisan jab at the feds. So that's that. Any, uh, any thoughts from, uh, from Al, you want to, Al, you want to jump in and defend All your right, guy? I love it. Look, uh, the point of which is to be transparent as to where your tax dollars are going and to be able to say, look, you're paying this extra. This is where it's going. And that was the concept of it. But I think the ruling is just that whether the, uh, the gas station owners have to 
put up the sticker or not. Right, but not you, you could have made it. You could have made it. I mean, if you had made it voluntary, presumably a bunch of gas stations, you know, more conservative leaning gas stations that that hate taxes sure. would, have, would have would have thrown this up. It was the forced nature of this that was the forced nature. So I just want to be clear: the sticker itself is not the illegal part. To to inform somebody of where your taxpayers' dollars are going, as long as it's true, is not illegal. The illegal part or the the ruling part dealt with being forced to put it up or not. And, and I agree with that because I believe in individual rights. And, and the owner, and the owner signed if you, if you fail to put it up, I guess was the- Yeah, we'll, we'll I, I might've gone too. too far. Might've gone too far. Okay, so we'll see how it plays out. I don't think that's, a, most people these days are not thinking about Breaking that. news, about, Al agrees with uh, Dave and Dan that uh, that this was, uh, was government, was that the Ford government over, overstepped on this one. Based upon the ruling, the judges said that, and I could see how they could rule in that way. But well, Premier uh, Ford's in town next. We'll have to quote this uh, this segment to him. Dan. I didn't say anything contrary to Ford. I mean, this is a legal issue. I, I said that the a transparency for the sticker was correct. Uh, anyways, uh, Christine, did you comment on this one yet? I haven't commented on it, and really, I, I find it, um, well, to force, and, and it is a very blatant sticker, anti-carbon tax stickers. That's how it's presented here. I don't know. I never saw one, so I don't know what they look like. Well, they're all in the uh, gas stations. You see them. I know, and I don't, you know, I was. You don't pump your own gonna, gas. You get Steve I, to go I do, do it. I do, but I'm just kind of in my own little bubble, and I, I you could put, you know, like, really, so this, this is a problem, but I agree with the thing that it shouldn't, um, it, it should have been made uh, optional for the owners, uh, you know, the gas station owners. That's okay. about it. All right, listen, let's get to this awesome, awesome story, okay? Everybody knows mathematics doesn't make sense when everybody gets the same 50 people that's allowed to go in your establishment when somebody has a thousand square feet Okay, that, okay, 1,000 square feet, you're allowed 50 people. And then you have Caesars Windsor, which is gigantic, and they normally can host even 10,000 people, but they also are limited to 50 people. Does that make any sense? Of course not. So now the union and the casino and hopefully the government have this great idea of sectioning off the casino into 12 individual pod sections, so I can imagine there'll be like the poker room section, then there'll be the roulette section, st uh, different slot machines, the high limit rooms. It's almost sectioned off anyways. Then you've got Legends Lounge and you've got the concert section. I mean, I know the casino very well. Uh, I think it's one of the, the best marvels uh, of our city to offer to attract American dollars into our city and to attract concerts from Toronto and everything. I mean, it's like, wow, Windsor, Ontario has got a Caesars casino establishment worth a couple billion dollars that is that's run so professionally and meanwhile it's closed because it doesn't make sense to open with 50 people obviously not now can it open uh with and be viable with 12 pod sections each having a capacity of 50 people i think they can i think that's a model that makes sense it doesn't violate the 50 uh people restriction no one will say, oh, you get more, you get 600, but we only get 50. Yeah, but we're in 12 pod sections. It technically is like 12 different sections of our business. And keep the staff isolated in that bubble section. You have to go around, maybe put some plastic up or, or um, plexiglass so that there could be separation. I'm sure they'll spend millions of dollars to make it safe, but the concept there uh, makes it work. 12 sections, 12 pods of 50 people each, 
within line of what's being allowed and let's open up Caesars Windsor and let's hope also we can get our American friends over uh, with ease and let's start getting things back to normal. Yeah, so I'm I'm sure that certain areas of the casino are more profitable than others, but it seems to make a lot of sense in in areas where there's you know just there's huge swaths of the of the um, establishment that are just slot machines, and, and that seems like an an easy fix, right? You only use every one or uh, every other one or every third one, uh, and make sure there's cleaning in between uses. The the more problematic is going to be um, uh, the card games, uh, those areas where you're you're stuck together just by nature of, of how the the game is played. Although I imagine there's a precaution they can put in place that things like blackjack tables and 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 roulette tables and things like that so um you know good for season windsor if they found a way to at least break even uh, i know at 50 people uh only allowed in they would have been losing gobs and gobs and gobs of money so it makes sense to find some alternative way to open that um they can break even or make a little money and uh, start getting back to a bit of normalcy uh, at Caesars windsor and let's also remember we got 2300 workers at Caesars Windsor, our second biggest industry after the auto sector. And what, they're gonna just continue to collect EI and serve and let their talents fade? People like to work for their money as opposed to getting it for free. I still believe intrinsically though that you wanna be productive and you know, it has to happen. And those, those are good paying jobs too, right? Those 2300 jobs are good paying jobs, which I'm sure CERB and or EI is not coming close to replacing what their actual income is, so. I. I love the casino. I love what it's done for Windsor. It brings in a lot of uh, concerts and shows. It brings people to uh, be able to enjoy good food from chefs that have been trained in Windsor. And uh, there are many chefs and great food uh, being offered. Uh, it is also a place where a lot of retired people go on a regular basis. And uh, a lot of uh, Windsorites go on a regular basis. Um, they meet up with friends and then they go for a coffee, they go for uh, a show, they go and, and gamble a little bit. And um, all of this has been missing in their lives. The problem I see, and maybe it's just my perception of things, so what I've, I've um, uh, observed around me is that really the, the group that we want to protect, especially maybe through this uh, all this social distancing, I'm saying especially, but it's really everyone that is being protected, but are the elderly, of course, they're the most vulnerable, and they're the most likely not to follow or, or often don't follow the rules. And I'm afraid that um, people are going to, um, it's going to be very hard to convince people to stay at one machine, for example, or to follow the, it will have to be very, very carefully um, monitored. But yes, it needs to be opened up and certainly for the well-being of uh, the elderly who are in the majority uh, of people, not exclusive, of course, but an, an awful lot of um, elderly people uh, have this as their distraction uh, and it has been gone. And um, I think for mental health and wellness, it is a very, a very important thing to get it up and running and to get people working again, as Al said. Yeah, I think, look, everybody across the spectrum wants the casino back open. The union wants it back open. The government wants it back open. Certainly the local government gets a huge, gets a huge hosting fee from the city that they're burning on um, with it not being open. So I think everybody wants it reopened. But, you know, it comes back to our first story about COVID being spread at a card game. And, uh, and you know, and, and I also just, I wonder, even this plan for 50 people in 12 different sections, I, if that's, 
if that includes staff and customers, like I, I still don't know how how the economics of scale work to uh, to get to get this place open. But I think everybody notionally wants it open. Um, the economy needs it open. The workers need it open. Um, I just, you know, I, I don't know how I don't know how this is going to work. But I think that we're all kind of on the same page that we want it open. Um, there's huge benefits to our. There's some risks to our city too, um, but there's huge benefits to our city financially to get the place open. So, uh, so, so it's going to be certainly something to watch in the coming uh, weeks. I think that when uh, when Premier Ford was down here a couple of weeks ago, he said that there would be news soon. Well, time for some news soon. I think so, that's the news right there. Top. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's good news that Caesar Windsor is finding a way to to reopen and hopefully um, become uh, very viable again in very short order. Uh, we all know that the uh, other industry that's really been struggling through COVID nineteen has been the restaurant industry, um, losing its ability for for sit sit down uh, internally and only that that recently being restored to some degree, um, and continuing to to struggle. Uh, but outdoor patios have been helping many establishments, especially in the, the downtown core uh, that I've noticed. And so we, we do get to close off with a, a really good news story. Um, there is an outdoor uh, food hall uh, open at Lansbury Park. Um, if you know Lansbury Park, there is a, uh, there's a, a hockey, uh, outdoor hockey rink there that's utilized obviously in the winter months. Uh, and in the summer months, it's a bare concrete pad that's covered. Um, so I went there two years ago prior to the pandemic uh, for a, uh, uh, a food truck event, and now it's being done again. Uh, it's being put on by Windsor Eats, um, and this weekend's lineup, um, uh, and actually this story is out, outdated. Um, so this past weekend's lineup was uh, Travel Cut Philippine Cuisine, Road Chef, uh, uh, BZB uh, Test Kitchen, Rico Taco, and Robbie's Gourmet Sausage Co., and so um, hopefully people had a chance to get out there and check out the, um, uh, the, the, the local vendors and supported them. Um, but just good to see that the, the city is, is continuing to find innovative ways to help our, our food industry um, to, to continue to try to make money and get through these difficult times. Yeah, I think a great news story. Very cool. Uh, big shout out to Windsor Eats, Adriano and Pina Chotoli, I believe is their last names. Uh, you know, re really cool thing that uh, that I hope that people get to enjoy. We've seen the uh, the drive-ins that WIF is doing. We've seen some of the uh, the extended patios. Um, so I, I think this is a this is a cool thing and uh, good on Windsor Eats for uh, for for pushing this forward. Yep, everyone's trying to innovate, and it's it's just a good news story to see people actually getting out there and getting things done. I think uh, I think food the food scene is going to survive and actually not only survive but flourish. We are just finding new ways, creative ways, and I think it also shows that Windsor loves its food and it's the people who who, who serve it and 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 create it and make it so pleasant for us. So I think it's one of our our gems, and it always surprises I think myself and 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 other members of the family when we go outside how wonderful the. Food food is here at home. Love the food trucks. See them on TV. Big fanfare. Good idea. Way to go. Windsor Eats. Yeah, I'm still a bit surprised that the, uh, the riverfront hasn't been utilized more this summer for, for food trucks and, and getting people out. Um, but, you know, I, I think we're slow to realize that we could adapt and it's nice to see that's finally happening. All right. Well, everyone's been talking about our Ward 7 interviews. Uh, the way it's been fair, the way it's been broad-ranged, the way it's been consistent, 
and the way we've been giving open-ended questions to our Ward 7 candidates. And the interviews have been really a good platform for them to have very good quality uh, sound and messaging and answering the, the questions. We've been very consistent with that. We even let and you pick your interviewer if you don't like me. <laughs> Apparently so. Um, but there's some news coming up. Uh, we, we've talked about, you know, when are these guys going to debate? It's already been so long. And it looks like something's going to be put together very, very soon. There's uh, debate organizers, as there should be. And uh, this story here is on CBC. And the CBC News talked about debate organizers hope to draw attention back to Windsor's Ward 7 by-election. We've never dropped the ball on it. We, that's the only game in town right now. So the race to replace former councillor Eric Kersmerzik, uh, who kind of gave up his seat because he became an MP, obviously. Um, so there's really not much time left. It was first scheduled on April 27th. Now it's going to October 5th. And I've always said that extra time gave a big advantage to G1 Gill, who kind of jumped in the race very late if it was going to be October 20, April 27th. Uh, now with October 5th, you look at the signs. But what's, what's the candidates going to debate? So you can obviously go to Windsor's Inside Pulse and listen to all the interviews, but these guys are going to have different questions. And uh, Ernie Lamont is not going to join, but it looks like uh, the vast majority of everyone else is going. They have a picture of G1 Gill. Uh, wonders if the seniors in his ward will be up to the task of a Zoom debate because it is going to be online. But I have a feeling what they're going to do is uh, record it and then play it so that even though you can't, because with Zoom, you have the ability of recording it, as we do with our shows, and then just put it up on YouTube and people can watch it anytime they want so they don't have to watch it live stream. And if they're not doing that, I'm hoping they do do that as a way for people to follow at their leisure. Daniel? Uh, yeah, so uh, so tomorrow night, Wednesday night, is going to be the first debate that's being hosted by the uh, Federation of University Women Windsor chapter, I believe two weeks from tonight night um, the young rotary leaders are hosting a debate so that will certainly be uh, be exciting things to watch I think that you know we uh, we gave all the candidates a platform to really tell us who they are and what they're about I think that the debates will be a bit of a different format they will be an opportunity for the candidates to uh, you know really separate themselves hopefully some good uh, some good debate some good uh, some good arguments I've really enjoyed all of our interviews so far I think we've got another uh, couple of them coming up um, and I think that there's going be a lot more uh, a lot more to talk about about the election in the uh, in the coming weeks I think uh, you know one name that we didn't that we never mentioned uh, that we never really discussed um, earlier on was a uh, Mike Malott and I, I'm seeing him do some things and I think he, he might be a dark horse in this race uh, he ran before for school board trustee got 1600 votes uh, in 2014 so uh, so that might be somebody to watch especially if there might be a, uh, a coming together of the labor vote there's currently sort of two labor candidates but uh, but I think that's something to watch uh, Dave thoughts on uh, where we're at with less than a month to go if, if I could just clarify, those sixteen hundred votes were based upon multiple ridings. Yeah, that was that, well. That was two. That was two wards. That was certainly two wards. Two wards, because sixteen hundred um, votes might win it this time for somebody, right? Well, sixteen hundred votes would certainly win it. A thousand might win it. Yeah, I, I think we can. I, I think we can all agree that sixteen hundred votes. So that's the end of the yeah, night. So he added in two wards. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. he. So you know, if you were to divide that evenly, but and six gets that was six and seven. So six generally has a few more voters. Um, but but between six and seven, he had over sixteen hundred votes for a down ballot school board trustee. So uh, so uh, Dave, your thoughts on where we're at? Less than a month to go. 
Yeah, I, I still think it comes down to the ground game at, at the end of this. Um, debates aren't going to, to win or um, lose it for anyone, that I, I don't think at least, unless someone says really, something really outrageous that catches um, the eye of a major media outlet. Um, it's not going to win or lose it for anyone. Um, people like us might be watching uh, across the city who are really interested in, in politics and might want to follow it, but none of us are voting in Ward 7 as far as I know. Uh, none of us live there, right? So you have political watchers across the city tuning in, but the question becomes um, how many many, and to, to echo Jeevan's comments, how many voters from Ward 7 actually tune in and decide how to vote through the debate process? Um, maybe I'm surprised that it's going to be a whole ton of people. Uh, maybe it's only a handful from Ward 7 that actually tune into these things. Because it, yeah, does, it, it does matter as to how the word gets out there. I think the um, piece from the debates is that the media will watch. And Jarvis actually, just before our show tonight, put out an article noting that she's going to be watching and will then be commenting after the debate. So I think the big thing, as much as maybe getting 50 people that have already made up their minds because they're already interested watching the debate, it's the uh, the mainstream press that it picks up. So, uh, Christine, yeah. Christine yes, final well, thoughts on uh, yes. where we're at? I'm in agreement with you. I don't think it's going to make or break any one of the candidates, probably, but what will is the turnout. And I think really, um, if you get your uh, constituents, your, your, the ones who are support, your supporters out to vote, you're going to win. And so the key is going to be to get those supporters out the day of or the couple days before because they have four days to vote there's pre uh, pre voting day voting and so get them out and you'll you'll be in and i mean 12 people in the in the race that means that it's going to be very it, you won't need very many votes to win um, the debate will cover five topics flooding, waterfront development, widening Banwell Road, the opioid crisis, and affordable housing. So it'll be a little bit different from the, the interviews we've had. All righty. Well, uh, on that note, thank you once again for joining us on the mothership of Windsor's Inside Pulse. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. Join us on Facebook at Windsor's Inside Pulse for show updates and our bonus episodes. Thank you for joining us. Have a great week, and we will see you next week. 